Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 197. My name is Aryoban Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King, thank you, Lord, for bringing us uh, once again, as you always do, to a place where we need to quiet our hearts and quiet our minds and allow your Spirit to begin to speak to us and begin to draw us into this relationship that we have with you uh, via the this medium of Bible study and discussion. And um, Lord, we know that unless we allow the Holy Spirit to... Um, make the words alive to us, then it's just going to be words on a page. Uh, It's just going to be intellectually stimulating. But, Lord, we want this experience to be more than that. And so, by faith, we're praying that um, we would have this uh, um, uh, time together where we can study your words and and, uh, um, contemplate their meanings and, 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 um, you know, memorize them and and mull over them and... and, um, chew on them and digest them and uh, allow the spirit to activate the meanings in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits so that we can, um, that a change can be affected. We want the, uh, the, the, the study to be fruitful. We want it to bear fruit. We know that your word will not return to you void because there's a power, especially when the spirit is in there. And so uh, we're not just uh, doing this for routine sake. It's not just um, how did Paul put it in second Corinthians? It's not, um, uh, uh, words written in, in stone, are, it's not the letter of the law, Lord, it's the spirit that we're seeking. Not that the letter uh, letters are wrong. But thank you, Lord, for this uh, uh, opportunity. Each and every student that joins me week after week is a blessing to me, and I'm blessed and um, um, uh, just count myself um, um, among those who are, are uh, uh, I don't want to use the word lucky, but uh honored and uh, uh, to be able to uh, meet with other people and share my thoughts with them. Um, it's a privilege. Privilege is the word I was looking for. So thank you, Lord, for those who join me week after week. Bless them for their effort, for their time, uh, for their questions, for their insights. Um, um, it's just a, a great experience. Um, continue to uh, strengthen us, raise us up, give us voices, give us opportunities to, to witness um continue to protect us from uh this evil pandemic and help us uh during this confusion confusing election time especially in america lord uh, uh, things just get crazy around election years so um help us to have a, a moral sanity uh spiritual clarity around the issues lord and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory by shim yeshua amen all right. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. As always, my name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. These are the hour-long um, uh, live internet studies. Even though you may only be watching one of the short five-minute versions of the video, I just want to alert you to the fact that this is an hour-long study. The video doesn't get uploaded to YouTube until later on in the week after I'm recording it live here on Saturday night. So it's almost a full six days or so before you see the YouTube video. But in the meantime, you can catch all the individual five-minute clips that I snip off from the longer study and digest those during the week. So our first 30-minute session is uh, entitled, um, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? And essentially, we're dealing with one passage, and I'm offering my comments. Let's jump right into the verse, the, the, the uh, passage. And then we'll jump right into my study. So you can see on my screen, we've got a heading in the ESV, a question about fasting. And then we've got 
uh, um, a passage here. So let me read it for you real quick. Uh, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. That's the study's focus. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the wines, if it is the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. End quote. As you can already see from the parable, there is no explanation given by the master. Yeshua doesn't tell us what the parable means. He doesn't even use the word parable here in this version. In Luke, it shows up, the word parable shows up. So what we've been working from is the historic Christian allegorical opinion or interpretation offered to these words of Yeshua about why aren't he and his disciples fasting like most Jews or religious Jews of the first century would have been doing during this time period. And Yeshua simply offers this wedding analogy, and then he follows it rapid in rapid succession with two parables, one about sewing uh, clothing, old, old clothing, and one about um, pouring new wine into old wine sins, etc., etc. And so Christianity has ascertained that what Yeshua is probably referring to is the fact that Yeshua's own teachings are so radically new that they are going to disrupt the um, normative religious system of things. The way of approaching God is changing, right? A change is in the air. And so out with the old, in with the new. And in this allegory or analogy or interpretation that Christianity has offered for the last 1900, 2000 years or so, it sounds very appealing to Christian, especially Gentile Christians, to say that, um, Jesus is bringing a radical new experience, um, and Judaism represents that which is old and outdated and, and needs to be discarded because it's it's worn out, it's it's run its course. It's the old wine that needs to be replaced by new wine. It's the old garment that needs to be replaced by the new garment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so it sounds all very good and well, except when you're on the receiving end and you're the Jews and you're the ones who are being pushed out of the picture in favor of this new people group known as Gentile Christianity. The law of Moses is being replaced by the law of Christ. The old covenant is being replaced by the new covenant, right? It doesn't feel very good if you're on the Jewish side of that equation, and rightfully so. This uh, interpretation that we've been looking at has been um, categorized by the um, examples that I've been using in my commentary. So let's turn there next. Um, as you already know, we looked at um, uh, Pastor John Piper. We also looked at gotquestions.org. We also looked at um, John MacArthur. Uh, we looked at Pastor David Guzik. And now we're in the summary section, and we're recalling where we went. So follow along with me in my commentary. These are my own thoughts. Finally, from the prevailing views of the Christian camp, we examine, this is a summary, we examine the comments of Pastor David Guzik. Again, we stress the notion that Pastor Guzik is a fine Bible expositor with a solid foundation in the biblical Jesus and a firm grasp of the central truths of the genuine gospel. So what I'm doing is I'm offering you this summary of my own um, perspective, and what I demonstrated in my study is that when we look at this passage, this is just a snapshot, by the way. 
when we look at this passage, we end up discussing a topic known as replacement theology, supersessionism, has a little bit of dispensationalism thrown in there. The idea is that how do we understand what G- Jesus means by um, patching up old clothing and, and pouring wine into wineskins? How does that relate to his overall message and his mission when he was here on earth? Again, historic Christianity, without the benefit of having Jesus explain the parables point blank, where he just tells you, this is what the parable means, these are what the analogies correspond to, etc., etc. He doesn't give us that. Instead, we're left to scratch our head and figure it out on our own, but not entirely devoid of the help of the Holy Spirit. We can look at the, the Yeshua's life and draw some inferences from there, but unfortunately, what we have done as Gentile Christians is we followed down a path that was in, that was motivated by this idea that Judaism must have been in need of being repaired. Otherwise, why would Jesus have to come and, re- and rebuke the religious system so harshly? You know, you get to Matthew chapter 23, and he's just throwing Judaism under the bus. The point we're trying to bring up, however, as I'm interjecting here, is that if we characterize and almost even stereotype Judaism as this, as this meritorious work system, as this this stone-cold legalism where the Jewish people were trying to earn their way into heaven by keeping the commandments and doing the sacrifices, where there's just black and white, I've got to keep the commandments because that's the only way I'm going to be saved, and I've got to keep it perfectly or I'm not going to stay saved, something to that effect. Using that Christian perspective or that stereotype or kind of caricature of the first century Jewish um, religious system, if we use that then it's easy to see how that Jesus system of grace and love and genuine faith in God via his sacrifice must replace the bankrupt system of anything else. That's true. In other words, let me say it this way. To the extent that Jesus is bringing the genuine experience, the genuine relationship with God his Father through him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's in contradistinction to anything else that would try to purport to be a relationship with God, any other legalistic system, any other meritorious merit theology works, righteousness, anything, any other um, ethnic, Jewish, um, uh, uh, what do I say, um, ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism, any other kind of um, bringing your Jewish identity before God and hoping that's going to prop you up righteously. Obviously, yes, um, it's only genuine faith in God through the grace of God that brings about the genuine salvation experience and relationship with God. So, I agree with that. To that extent, um, yes, Jesus brought something what we might say is radically new. Nevertheless, let's keep reading my commentary and, and gain some further insight to this. I said, nevertheless, Pastor Guzik represented, or he presented, an interpretation of Matthew 9, 14-17 that essentially agreed with the previously examined Christian positions, right? Pastor John MacArthur, Pastor um, John Piper, and GodQuestions.org. I only looked at four mainstream Christian versions, then I looked at David Stern's, who's a Messianic Jewish version, which we're going to get to in a second, and then I looked at um, um, Tim Haig. But we ascertained that Pastor uh, Guzik essentially agrees with the previous examined Christian positions, and here it is, in that, you ready for it? Jesus did not come to repair Judaism, but to replace it with the new covenant. And that last sentence, that last sentence 
in my understanding and experience of firsthand uh, uh, interacting with Christians. This is not something I just Googled from where I am here in South Korea. This is something I've actually lived and walked in amongst and, and interacted with folks while I lived in America, where I visited church after church and dialogued with people, pastors, pew sitters, uh, people like that, and dialogued and, and just got their perspective. The general consensus from across the board, and in, in, in especially in Protestant evangelical Christ, versions of Christianity, is that Jesus didn't come to repair Judaism, but to replace it with the new covenant. And thus, most Christians will say we're no longer under the law. We are not Old Testament Christians. We are New Testament Christians. We are New Covenant Christians, etc., etc. And again, if their definition of the word New Covenant or New Testament means I am a saved person, well, then I agree with that. But if, the, if they're using it to try to distance themselves from any obligation to keep the Torah— as a Christian, then I'm going to have problems with that. Understand where I'm, where I'm going with that. All right, let's keep reading. Indeed, I say to my commentary, Pastor Guzik feels that Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old, and thus there would be no need for a Jew to hold on to the cultural vestige, vestiges of Judaism once he embraced the new covenant. And this taken to an unfortunate extreme, is exactly what happened historically in early Christianity as it began to um, be dominated by non-Jewish uh, participants. So very early on, Gentile Christians began to uh, outnumber the Jewish constituents within uh, the early church, and it wasn't too long before the church was basically ent entirely Gentile Christian. And what this demonstrated was that um, very early on, the, 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 the sentiments of replacement theology was the idea that Judaism was incompatible. That was the message that was being kind of um, conveyed by the early church uh, leaders' decisions to expunge any element or vestiges or semblances of law-keeping or Jewish lifestyle um, I know there were other factors as well. They didn't want to be persecuted right alongside the Jews by the emperors who couldn't tell the difference very early on between um, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians because they both looked the same. They both attended synagogue. They both followed after the commandments of Moses, etc. But um, as the persecutions began to heat up uh, by the Roman uh, uh, leaders, right, the Caesars, etc., etc., then the, the Gentile Christians wanted to make a break and say, look, uh, Mr. Emperor, we're not Jews. Don't persecute us as Jews. Um, we're different from Jews. We believe in Jesus. They don't. And that was one of the marked differences. And so um, Paul's writings were used very, very early on, even as early as the first late first century by uh, a church leader by the name of Marcion, to try and draw this um, dichotomy and difference and, and, and put up a wall between the Jewish synagogue, which had rejected Jesus uh, car, uh, wholesale, and the um, uh, the emerging Gentile Christians who were embracing Jesus as the Messiah, and so we can see then that um, these sentiments about no need for a Jew to hold on to the cultural vestiges of Judaism once he embraced the new covenant became the cultural norm in the Gentilized versions of the church. Um, why do you want to hold on to that that form of religion which which rejects Jesus, which um, represents 
um, that which is the shadow, the mere shadow, even we can add the word mere there for a fa- for emphasis. Why do you want to hold on to that which is obviously been um, proven to be uh, deficient and defective? Um, you know, they have their uh, it's 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 what we psychologists refer to as othering. It's us versus them. They have their beliefs and we have our beliefs and our beliefs are that Jesus is Messiah and their belief is that he isn't. And therefore, whose side are you going to take? Right. Kind of a, a a no-brainer when it came to Gentile Christians. All right, so let's keep reading. So what I go on to say is that in the end, it appears that all four traditional Christian views that I presented in my paper, so we got Pastor Piper, got questions.org, um, MacArthur, and, and Guzik, all four of them more or less agree with one another in this way. And what I talk about when I say agree, I don't mean that they um, sat down and had some um, powwow session and said, hey, let's compare notes. It's actually more um, more simple than that. They didn't have to do that. It's that within Christianity, there's already this shared narrative as far as um, uh, history when it comes to why we don't keep the Torah anymore. There's, there's two, in my experience as a Messianic Jew, let me interject for a moment. I've kind of distilled that the question of why don't we keep the Torah? I've distilled that question into two answers. In my experience and um, uh, research into this question, when I, if we were to like take a, a national poll survey or you know a Pew 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 survey or something like that, um, and ask a general uh, question to Gentile Christians or just church-going folk. We don't have to distinguish between Jewish and Gentile, just just people who attend church and call themselves Christian. Why do you think, or why don't you keep the Torah anymore? Why why has Christianity um, taken the stance that they do where they feel that the Torah is no longer relevant? Um, you know, why why is that taught from the pulpit so freely and easily and readily and, and, and uh, repeatedly? And the general answers that I have uh, uh, received in my 25 years of being a a Christian is I've distilled the answers into two general camps. One of these camps is the answer is we don't keep the Torah because we're no longer under the law anymore. And, the, and all of its various answers like Jesus fulfilled it. Um, he did it. So we don't have to, um, uh, it was the shadow. Jesus is the type. Uh, he's the reality. Um, uh, they all pointed to him. Um, something to that effect. And then the other camp that these all, all fall into, these answers as to why we don't keep it anymore, is identity. Those those things were for Israel. Those things were the Jew were for the Jews. The Torah, the law of Moses, was given to Israel. It was given to the the synagogue. It's their uh, responsibility. It's not ours. We're not Jews. We're not Israel. We're the church. So it's an issue of who we are. So or sometimes it's a it's a kind of a, um, a mashup between those two. Um, uh, but generally speaking, uh, those are the two that I've determined where, why it comes down to that. And that forms this popular narrative in Christian circles, which is shared. When I say narrative, it's almost like a story that's um, circulated year after year after year after year after year, century after century, almost like the Christmas story, as it were. And so it becomes um, something that people just kind of know um uh, within their culture, within their society, you know, you grow up hearing this as a child, and you're per- it's it permeates your family conversations, 
uh, your church experience, and then when you reach adulthood and continue to uh, as a Christian, it's just the the thing that you were taught as an adult. It's it's what your parents taught you. It's what their parents taught them. It's what their grandparents and grandparents and great grandparents. So it's it's a story. It's a narrative, and that's why I describe it the way. So all these pastors, you know, Guzik, MacArthur, Piper, God questions that are, they didn't really have to confer with one another. They all share the same narrative. They have the same story that they're that they're um, dealing with, which I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. So don't don't misinterpret my tone as wow they've got this crazy, uh, you know, mistaken notion. They all they're all drinking the same Kool Aid or something. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm simply trying to say that unless you actually do your own personal research and look outside of the narrative, you might not be aware that there are other stories or narratives circulating out there, such as the Jewish perspective as to why we still keep Torah, or the Jewish perspective as to um, why we don't believe in Jesus, or um, uh, you know why we think replacement theology is a bad idea. So let's keep going in my commentary. So we got these four in my commentary, and here's what I say. They, they agree with the, all with one another in this particular way. Judaism and its rituals represent an undesirable, unshrunk patch and old wine. So that's where we fill in the uh, uh, parable analogies, the, the elements again. The unshrunk patch and the old wine are, are Judaism. And Jesus' teachings and the gospel, well, they represent the desirable new garment and the new wine. So see how convenient it is to plug, especially if you're on the winning side of this debate, to plug your side in to the elements of the story that are favorable. And again, all of this was done without the benefit of really some meaningful sit-down, one-to-one dialogue with the Jewish community. Essentially, um, is there, you know, 1,900 years ago, the church and the synagogue parted ways. There was a schism, even before the schism of the of the 1,000s between the Protestant church, I'm sorry, between the uh, Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Great Schism. There was an earlier schism that took place closer to the first century where the Jewish synagogue parted ways with the Gentile Christian Church, and the Gentile Christian Church parted ways with their synagogue counterparts, and the two formed two different competing religious streams of um, narrative and religious experience, including all of their traditions and um, hand-me-downs and all these other uh, dialogues and prayers and things like that. And so, uh, as I say in my commentary, the caricature of Judaism presented by all four samples seems to me to be too pejorative for a Messianic Jew to accept, even if it's unintentional. Even if, and I'm quite sure, if I had all four of these groups represented sitting in front of me right now, I had Piper, MacArthur, GotQuestions.org, and uh, Guzik. If I had all four of them sitting in front of me face-to-face right now, and I explained to them as a Messianic Jew, do you know that your explanation of this parable in Yeshua, of the, of the, the wine and the patch and the, the wedding and why Yeshua did what he did, do you know that your explanation offends me as a Messianic Jew? I'm quite certain they would say, well, we don't intend to offend you. We consider you our brother, especially if you are a Messianic Jew. If you believe in Jesus the way that we do, if you consider that Jesus is, is your Lord the way, same way that we do, then this, you're our brother. And we're certainly very sorry for the offense. We don't mean that. But they would probably be quick to add that it was necessary for Jesus to come and replace those old religious systems because they were relying on their own works and their own legalism to get them in 
to an audience with God, and it was necessary that Jesus came to show them the error of their ways. So even though it's offensive, sometimes truth hurts, and sometimes truth can be offensive. And so they probably add that particular element to their um, answer to me, if I were to be able to dialogue with them. Let's continue my comment here. I say, what is more, based on the weight of the testimony of the rest of the Bible, these are my own thoughts, the sentiments expressed by my four Christian samples do not seem to portray Yeshua's teachings from this passage in the best historical and theologically accurate manner. And this is what I mean when I talk about how that if you look at what Yeshua said earlier in the book of Matthew, particularly around chapter 5, during a Sermon on the Mount address, he doesn't say that he's come to do away with the law. He does say he's come to fulfill it, right? So he uses the F word. Yeah, I, I kind of jokingly, humorously said he uses the F word. He came to fulfill it, but this word fulfill, as it was originally used by Yeshua, has come to mean something perhaps even slightly different or even entirely different in Jewish I'm sorry, in uh, Christian narrative circles, right? When Yeshua said he came to fulfill it, I'm of the impression that he meant something along the lines of demonstrating the fullness of its meaning, um, filling it up to full measure so that nothing is lacking, uh, so that prophecies are brought to their fullness and their, their zenith in me as the Messiah, as the one spoken about uh, in Moses. Um, all that the law represents is embodied in me as the messiah i'm filling in for what i think yeshua meant by the word fulfilled all right i'll flash a little video on the screen as well that talks about this um and um fulfilled also can can uh carry the the connotation of i came to demonstrate how to do it correctly so that you have a model a perfect model to follow now in other words yeshua was aware that uh the jewish leaders of the day were um they had um, marred the image of Moses. They had corrupted it. They had uh, so clouded and confused uh, what it meant to be a Torah-observant person that your average follower, your average Jewish uh, person in the first century uh, couldn't make heads or tails between what God said and what the rabbi said and what the traditions were saying. Right? It was all kind of mashed together. It was all conflated. Uh, it was all mixed up and confused together. It was, and it was, um, there was so much... Uh, oral tradition and tradition itself uh, built on top of the written word of God that um, the, the written word of God had lost its potency. It was, it, was, it was very difficult to even ascertain what God was asking us to do because there were so many extra biblical uh, requirements and minutia tech on top of it. And Yeshua came to cut through all of that. He came to get back to the pure uh, um, uh, love and grace and truth of, the, of his father's Torah as was given to Moses originally, before it was perverted and corrupted and, and twisted by the religious leaders and the systems of the day. Yeshua came to, to, to uh, kind of push the reset button, as it were, not on Judaism as a religion, but on the, um, well, maybe you could say he did, but as I understand it, when he says, I came to fulfill it, he said, he came to say, look, um, you guys have been um, trying to keep the Torah, but you're, you, you, you're following tradition after tradition and and oral Torah after oral Torah, and you don't even really know what my father said. You don't even know what the written word says anymore. Um, you just only know what the traditions say. Let me tell you what the written word really says. And he kind of modeled it and lived his life in such a way that was perfectly Torah observant. And he showed and he demonstrated what true Torah observance meant. And so 
we, he left an example for us to follow so that Paul can come along later on and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which means Paul was trying to say, I've got a, a version of Torah observance that is modeled after the Messiah's version of Torah observance. And so if you want to know what Messiah, uh, how he lived his life, look at me, imitate me, because I believe by the Spirit of God, I'm Paul speaking, I believe I'm fulfilling the law just like Christ fulfilled the law. Indeed, he goes on to write, in Romans chapter 8, that we who are um, followers of Yeshua, we can fulfill the righteous requirement of law. So we're using the F word again as well. But again, all of this is in contradistinction to a perspective being offered by later Christianity that says fulfillment is tantamount to no longer keeping the law or being obligated to keep it. Understand what I'm saying there? So, Christianity's version, historic Christianity, by and large, took the word fulfill in Jesus' statement in Matthew 5 as to be, Jesus did it so we no longer have to do it. He fulfilled it, and he fulfilled our obligation to do it. We don't have to concern ourselves with it. We're free from any obligation to do it. We no longer have, we no longer have to concern ourselves with it. We're free from the law. And we're now longer, oh, we're under grace. We don't have to do it because Jesus did it. Uh, God was asking someone to do it. Jesus stepped in and said, hey, I'll do it. He did it perfectly. Therefore, we don't have to do it anymore. And so that's their version of fulfillment, which I, again, disagree with. All right, let's keep reading my commentary. Let me see how much time I got. You know what? This is a perfect place to stop. Um, let's pick this up next week and finish this. Uh, we're working our way down through the summary section, and we're working our way towards um, some conclusions. But... Um, uh, We'll just keep going. It's probably going to go for another, I don't know, we're actually very near the end of the study. So um, it's not too much, it's not terribly too much longer. I think I'll be able to finish this before the end of this year. So, but that'll do it for our Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to TetzeTorah.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tor Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching.
watching and make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there those of you who are regular givers just absolutely um, so grateful I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time so uh, please do continue to keep giving uh, those of you who are regular givers those of you just give me one-time gifts that's fine as well too I mean uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Work our way through this 30-minute um, segment of my hour-long study. I hope you are, by the way, aware that these studies are one hour long. Yes, it takes about six or seven days for me to upload the um, entire um, hour-long uh, teaching to my YouTube channel, but it's worth the wait uh, if you want to listen to the entire hour-long study or just listen to the podcast if you've got iTunes or another, um, some sort of MP3 um, music um, subscription uh, service that allows you to listen to podcasts. Um, you can catch my podcast. I upload that very early in the week, just the audio version, the full hour-long study. This is a study on the nature of God and the um, persons of God. I firmly believe with a biblical faith that um, God is one being, but he's three persons. And all three of these persons are co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial. They, they, they're, they're all of the same power. None of them were created uh, all of them are uh, worthy to be worshipped. All of them are uh, full deity. And yet, they're three persons. Um, one is not the other. Uh, so we're talking, when we're talking about identity, numerical identity, um, they're separate persons. They're distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, etc., etc. So we've worked our way through a study that's available on my website at tatesaktorah.com. 
It's a three-part study, so it's it's broken up into three papers that are all sewn together into one giant study. It's done by the way on design by design. We've actually finished the study, and we've got an excursus at the very end that I tacked on that we're going to get to in a moment. But what I thought I'd do for now is go back and work our way down through the entire study. Um, let me just read the entire study one more time. No, I'm just teasing. I'm not going to do that to you. What I'll do is I'll just hit the um, uh, paragraph headings and kind of give you a brief summary or overview of what we talked about. Um, maybe it'll give you um, some um, uh, uh, desire to go back and read the whole study for, on your on your own. It's it's not very long as far as uh, uh, essays go or commentaries go. Um, in my experience, it's it's a shy of 60 pages, which is not a very long study. I mean, it's certainly not even a book length study. It would be a a little booklet, a pamphlet, if if I even printed it. All right, so. Um, the study is the entire study is called Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. And the very first paragraph section of paper one was Exploring the Shema, paper one of three, God is one. And so, uh, broadly speaking, if I were to look at the outline, which we are going to hear in a moment, the paper one dealt with God uh, the Father. And then paper two dealt with the identity of Jesus. And then paper three dealt with the identity of the Holy Spirit. And so, it's broken that, down that way on purpose. All right. So, in the first section, it was uh, where we talked about how God is one. And if you look at the paper one topics on my screen, we had, uh, if you're using the internet, by the way, all of these topics are linked. Uh, or if you print out, if you're reading the um, PDF version online, uh, or if you're even opening up a Word version online, which isn't available anyway except me, but the PDF version does this, all of these um, section, paragraph segments are um Hot link. So if you click on one, you can not only jump straight to the topic, but there's a little link that says return to the top, which is really, really nice. So in the introduction, it, there was, I'm sorry, in this section about paper one, there were six um, uh, kind of paragraph headings, topics. There was the introduction, then there was uh, number two, God is one, then there was number three, what does Echad mean? Number four was beholding Yeshua, beholding God. Number five, our God is complex. And number six was the conclusion. So if I click on the introduction, in that section, we simply introduced this idea of Trinity and talked about how that for Jewish people, Trinity can be challenging, downright offensive. But for Christians, it shouldn't be. But I talked about how the idea that if we're going to be on a search for truth, right, then we need to understand that truth preceded error. And so there are a lot of false views of Trinity out there, different versions of Trinity, uh, contradictions to Trinity, or challenges to Trinity. But in the end, God represents truth, and thus truth precedes error. And so in our search for truth, we must realize that we're searching to go back to what was original. Don't be folded in thinking that, that truth somehow came later. Right? I hear this argument in Unitarian circles all the time. Unitarian, not all Unitarians, but many biblical Unitarians will argue, well, God was always, always this monotheistic um, uh, monad, this singular being, this singular he, um, you know, monotheistic God, uh, until the uh, Catholic Trinitarians came along and perverted the whole thing and twisted scripture to turn God into this three-headed monster. And so um, Trinitarian represents a Johnny-come-lately um, solution to a dilemma of how do we fit Jesus into the narrative and blah, 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 blah. And so they're, they're quick to somehow throw Trinity under the bus by 
assuming and asserting without any evidence that Trinity is the is the error that came later and that monotheism and Unitarianism is the truth version. But that's actually backwards, right? And we talked about some of that, that concept in the first introduction section. So as I moved down into this paper uh, one, we talked about how that God is one in section in segment two. This is important as a foundational starting point when we're talking about Trinity, because often discussions on the issues of Trinity will confuse God's identity as if he's more than one God, not realizing that Trinitarians, biblical Unitarian Orthodox with a small O, we affirm that there's one God. We simply affirm that he is complex in his nature so as to be three persons in one God, three, one what and three who's, like Dr. James White's fond of saying. So the, the discussion about God being one is to affirm that we believe like non-Trinitarians in one God, we are monotheists, right? Even though the word monotheism doesn't show up in the Bible, just like the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, just like, guess what? You ready for it? The word Bible doesn't show up on the word Bible. All right. So God is one. There's no other God worthy of worship alongside of our God. He is the only God, right? We affirm the Shema, right? Here was Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The word Echad there, which I'll look at here in a second, can refer to um, the Lord alone. So, but the first thing that we talked about is that we're, it's, it's, it's necessary to affirm, especially Muslims seem to get confused by this, that Christians are worshiping three gods, right? There's one too many gods. Uh, Dr. Dale Tuggy is a little bit confused when he talks about identity. He seems to believe that, that Trinity represents too, one too many gods. So um, we talked about that in that particular segment. When we got to section three, what does Echad mean? Here's where I quoted the Shema. You can see the Hebrew on my screen right now. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And I've got it transliterated for those of you who can't read the Hebrew script. And so what we looked, what I um, um, brought into this particular section was a quote from uh, Dr. Um, Michael Brown, who's a foremost, one of the foremost um, biblical apologists, Messianic Jewish apologists on these particular topics. He's did his PhD in Near Eastern um, biblical languages, and so he's a he's a, somewhat of an expert when it comes to um, uh, biblical Hebrew and things like that. And he talked about how that the word achad. Um, here's my little quote from him. He talked about how the, the word achad uh, it does mean one, but it can re, it can also include a composite one, right? Uh, my good friend uh, Rabbi Eduardo. Um, who is the uh, associate rabbi at uh, Beth El Gibor Messianic Congregation in Pennsylvania? Just a little plug for them right now. I know uh, some of their members are in my uh, uh, room, my uh, live study room with me right now. Um, uh, rabbi Eduardo uh, Arroyo, he uh, mentioned in his sermon, uh, not this week, not this Saturday, but it was last Shabbat, he talked about very earlier on in his sermon, he was mentioning uh, about how that Trinity is under attack by so many um, in the Messianic movement. He talked about how that. In the Bible, God created man in his own image, but man was created as this, as male and female, yet God created him, right? And the text in Genesis talks about how that may, um, um, uh, in God's image, God created him, male and female created he them. And yet him is singular. God, Man was created as this singular, and yet God uh, created him, male and female. And so within the him, the one person, there's this, 
multiple person persons, as it were, not personality disorder. Don't get confused with my analogy here. But what Rabbi Ed was trying to simply offer was that if man from the beginning when he was created before God split the two, if he was multipersonal, I believe that's the word that Rabbi Ed used, if man himself is multipersonal, made in the image of God, well, then wouldn't it make sense that God is also multipersonal? And the answer is actually yes. It's very sound logic. Go back and listen to not this Sabbath sermon, so um, November the 5th. Don't listen to that, but listen to the one that came the week prior to that, and you'll, you'll hear the uh, sermon that I'm talking about. But Dr. Brown talks about how that Shema in the Hebrew means one, but it doesn't mean absolute one as in singularity. That We have a different Hebrew word for that. It's called yachid. It's rooted in the same word for echad, but it means in distinction to all else. So when the, when when uh, Moses writes, Heroes with the Lord of God, the Lord is one, he didn't mean like some Unitarians assume the Lord is one person. That's really the assumption that Unitarianism brings to the table. Heroes with the Lord our God, the Lord is one person. That's where they're inserting their theology into the text. But actually, what the Shema is conveying is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God, not one person. This allows for the word God to convey God's multiplicity or God's, um, um, uh, uh, God's complexity. Um, because the word one there can include um, complex um, fill in the blank, uh, things or persons or something like that. So, um, going back to Rabbi Ed's analogy, an example, when male and female are brought back together in marriage under God's design, the Torah says that they become one flesh. The Hebrew is basar echad, one flesh. It uses the word echad again, and God sees them as one flesh, kind of like the way he, when, they, when he created them. And yet, last time I checked, there's not a fusion between the physical body of the male and the female into one body, as if they look, they resemble one person. Every marriage I've ever seen is still two physical separate persons, and yet they are considered by God as one flesh. And that word one there is a chad. And lots of other examples. The tabernacle is one tabernacle, even though it's made up of many parts and pieces. The people of Israel are one people, even though there's lots of different persons in Israel. The church is one body, even though there's many different parts, etc., etc. Many examples we could use. And that was kind of what we looked at there. So don't get confused whenever you hear a, a Unitarian say, the Shema says that God is one, therefore there's no way he can be three persons. What they're really betraying, if they're not confessing it, if, even if they're unaware of it, they're betraying their eisegesis mindset and perspective where they're reading into the text that God cannot be three persons because they, they're reading that God is one. All right. In segment four, entitled Beholding Yeshua, Beholding God, we dealt with the controversial, shocking revelation that actually because Yeshua is the very image of God, indeed represents God in flesh, that to behold Yeshua is to behold God. Remember what John said, right? John 1 in his prologue, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This Word was in the beginning with God. So notice John both um, relates the Word as God and yet distinct from God in, in a very short se sequence of um, statements, very succinct and to the point, and this is because when we realize that God, when God created the heavens and the earth, 
He spoke the universe into existence, right? You read through Genesis, and God said, and God said, and God said. The Word of God is God, and yet the Word of God is coming forth from God, is issuing forth from God, is coming, it's moving from the inner nature of God outward in expressive force and impacting the actual creation of the universe. In, In agency form, the Word is creating the universe, but it is God's Word. And so, it's this overlap of, is the Word God or is the Word separate from God? The answer is yes, right? That's where Unitarians sometimes get confused. They say, well, Jesus is merely an agent of God. He can't be God because he's an agent. He's one who represents God, just like the Word, the Logos, represents the thought of God and the intentions of God, the will of God personified. But in the end, the spoken Word of God is actually just God. But they're failing to understand that the spoken Word of God is more than just the spoken Word of Ariel. I'm a mere human, and my words don't have the same creative force that the Word of God did, right? God could have thought the universe into existence. He's certainly powerful enough to do that, but He didn't. He spoke the Word into existence, and it's this spoken experience of God that the writers of the Bible picked up on and developed over the centuries to where it culminated in what we now call the Logos theology. It wasn't borrowed from the um, philosophical schools, although they had also come up with their own version of um, this um, this demiurge that created everything around them, this, this first cause and second cause and the unmoved mover and all of the philosophical discussions of Logos with Philo and, and, and um, you can read about in Josephus and things like that. Yes, they have their version of Logos, which kind of um, uh, parallels some of the things that John mentioned. That's unavoidable. But I believe actually John's borrowing not from the philosophy of the Greek schools, he's borrowing rather instead from the theology of the Hebraic scriptures, which had already uh, uh, conferred, right, read through the book of Psalms, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were created and things like that. So we don't need to borrow from some some ancient Greek uh, uh, philosophy on the Logos to understand that the Word of God is God, and yet it is an agent of God. That's the overlap. And so, to behold Yeshua is to behold God. Rabbi Ed mentioned this again in his sermon from uh, two weeks ago now, that Yeshua is Yahweh in flesh, right? That's a scandalous statement. And yet, we understand that Yeshua is not the Father. That's different. The Son is not the Father, and yet Yeshua is Yahweh. Yahweh is almost like a class um, uh, as it were, um, um, in, in that, in that, um, uh, identity discussion. But that's the discussion that we had there to behold Yeshua is to behold the father. Yeshua, um, hinted at this and even revealed this. And it was, it was shocking to the Jews of his day. It's still shocking to people today. You know, to see me is to see the father. He told John, I'm sorry. He told uh, Thomas, you know, Thomas said, Lord, it'll be enough. If you just show us the father and Yeshua was like, if I've been with you so long, Thomas, that you can't figure out it, if you've seen me, then you've seen the father, right? Um, I and the father are one. Um, and all these sorts of things. Um, uh, we can't see the father, to look at the Father is to invite death. To look at God in the person of the Father is to invite death. God said, you can't see my face and live. And also the Bible repeatedly tells us no man has ever seen God. And yet, there are numerous places, both through the Old Testament and the New Testament, New Testament, numerous places where people saw God, right? 
um, and yet they lived. And so it seems like there's a contradiction. There's numerous places in the New Testament that say no one can see God and live. I mean, God and the Old Testament also no one can see God. And yet people have seen God. And so we we need to understand that in the Old Testament, before Yeshua came to earth as a human, before the pre-incarnate, I'm sorry, before the incarnation took place, the eternal word of God who was with God and was God is what people were seeing, the theophany of God, the allowable interaction with the angel of the Lord or the captain of heaven's armies or um, the, um, the, the, uh, um, the angel in the bush that Moses interacted with in the book of Exodus and things like that. These are, or the, the three uh, men who showed up at the tent of the Oaks of Mamre with, um, with Abraham that we're reading out in today's uh, Torah portion, Parashat Lecha, um, Genesis 18 and things like that. Uh, nope, I'm sorry. That's, I think that's coming, up, that, that's coming up in next week's Torah portion. But either way, in the book of Genesis chapter 18, Abraham interacts with God. The text is clear. He's dialoguing with God. And yet, Moses also is careful to write that what appeared to Abraham was three men. Right, two of them turn out to be angels that go on to Sodom and Gomorrah, but one of them stays behind and talks with with uh, Abraham, and that's God. So it's, it's it's there's even this controversial discussion about how that Moses uh, uh, that Abraham stood standing before God, and how that's unacceptable in in Middle Eastern posture. Right, you don't stand before the person who's of higher rank than you. Um, that person stand, you stand before that person, that person doesn't stand before you or something like that. Yet it, Moses, I mean, the, the, the Masoretes swapped the text around. They changed the Hebrew because it was so, so, um, um, controversial that, that, that Abraham, a mere human was standing before God or God was standing before, uh, uh, Abraham. In other words, the, the, uh, the higher rank is supposed to be sitting the king and the subject is supposed to be standing before God, uh, the person who was sitting, but the text has it opposite and the point is, i'm bringing up is that it was really god it wasn't just another angel that's the point that's the reason why i went into all those details so um our god is complex to behold yeshua is to behold god to behold the face of god because we can't see god and yet to look at yeshua is to look at the son not the father there's two separate persons in segment five we looked at our god is complex and we just continue to talk about how that trinity introduces the discussion about the idea that when we're trying to ascertain the identity of God from the um, essence point of view, from his from his essential nature, we have this discussion known as ontological trinity. Ontological trinity. I'll flash a little graphic that's um, used to using on the screen. Ontology is the branch of metaphysics that deals with the natures of beings. Um, how can God be three? Right. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about identity. And the the nature of 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 is um, ontology is that branch, but we also talk about how that um, God is economically a Trinity, in that there are three persons, and in salvation history, the three persons play their different roles, and there is even subordination within the economic Trinity. God the Father begets God the Son, or the Son of God. Um, the Son is eternally begotten by the Father, not in temporal sense like humans beget one another like we give birth to each other rather it's an eternal begetting that simply describes their relationship to one another from father to son but it's eternal nevertheless there was never a time that the father was not the father and there was another time when the son was not the son that's eternal begetting nevertheless that's their relationship ontologically the the father 
eternally begets the Son, and the Son does that which is pleasing to the Father and is subservient to the Father in that role. Likewise, the Spirit uh, uh, is spirated. He's sent, eternally sent by the Father and the Son in this role of love, this expression of um, of um, confirming the words of, of uh, the Son and uh, demonstrating the unity uh, that is necessary for all believers to have, not just with the Son, but with the Father as well. And so, we're talking about the complexity of God in both the ontological trinity view and the economic trinity view. These aren't competing perspectives. These actually are two sides of one coin. And so, um, it's necessary when we're having discussions with non-Trinitarians that we differentiate between um, when we're saying that subject is something like Jesus is God or uh, Yahweh is God or the Holy Spirit is God. There are different ways to express this um, statement of is, and I'll flash a little graphic on the screen for this as well. Uh, the identity statement of the, uh, the the is, the verb, the copula. Um, Jesus is God. Are we saying that that's a statement of, is that an is of identity or is that an is of predication, right? Is it a statement of identity or is it a statement of predication? I'll flash a little example on the screen, but suffice to say that to say that someone is, when we say identity, then we're using two different um, nouns or titles, but we're describing the same person. Like, for instance, um, Marilyn Monroe's real name is not Marilyn Monroe. It's um, it's a different name. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'll flash it on the screen so you can see. Likewise, for instance, um, uh, who's that famous writer? Uh, Mark Twain. His real name isn't Mark Twain. It's something else, his birth name. So if, we were, if I were to say that Marilyn Monroe is, and then I were to say her real name, this is a statement of identity, right? Because the, the 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 title on either side of the is is the same. It's the same one of the same person. Uh, Mark Twain is so and so, whoever whatever his real name is. Same thing. I'll put it on the screen because I can't remember off the top of my head. That's a statement of identity. But if I say um, uh, Marilyn Monroe is an actress, well, that's a little different. That's a statement of predication. So um, Jesus is God. Is that a statement of identity or a statement of predication? We'll talk about that a little bit later. But that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the is is and, and identity. Uh, um, that's something that people like Dr. Dale Tuggy in his uh, philosophical mindset love to discuss. But it's it's necessary for we ordinary Christians to kind of be aware of because otherwise we end up expressing models of Trinity that are, that aren't actually accurate. Um, right, we do believe that Jesus is God, we, but we do not believe that the Son is the Father. So we have to be careful with our ises. All right, and then there were some conclusions, conclusions in paper one about those topics. Then when we got to paper two, exploring the Shema, paper two of three, Yahweh and Yeshua, we again looked at these particular topics. So there's five of them on my screen. We got the introduction: Is Trinitarianism logically incoherent? We dealt with um, uh, introducing this idea that is it. Is it not possible to speak of God being one yet three yet one? Right? Is it logically incoherent? Does it does it fail in its discussion? And from there we move to uh, uh, segment two. Let's get a little bit technical. There we kind of introduced a um, a case study on Dr. Dale Tuggy, who is a prominent biblical Unitarian. Um, um, his theology is is similar to ancient. Um, uh, dynamic monarchianism, a form of of non-Trinitarian monarchianism that uh, was present in the early first and second centuries uh, that believes that Jesus is essentially a human. He's not pre-existent. He wasn't 
He's not, he's not um, eternal like God the Father. He's not the Word made flesh. He's just a man that was born to the world. He was special, especially endowed by God. I like to say he was divinated. I think that's the terminology that shows up in some um, uh, uh, other religious circles. But he was divinized, as it were. He was, he was um, uh, um, glorified by God. And so he deserves to be called God in special circumstances. And he's certainly worthy of worship because God deems it so. And so Dr. Dale rejects Trinity for the simple fact that he believes that Jesus is just a man. So we built a kind of a case study around Dr. Dale's, uh, Dr. Tuggy's uh, biblical Unitarian perspective. Let's get a little bit technical. Was that? Is Yeshua God? An appeal to mystery was segment three. We looked at um, this idea of Mysterian theology, which is the idea that God is Trinity, but it's mysterious. It's something that was formerly hidden from mankind, but it's now revealed. God knew it all along, but man didn't know it. And that's why we didn't always see Trinity in the um, earlier parts of our Bible. It's not that God suddenly became Trinity when the Incarnation took place, right? Um, that's what um, Unitarians would want us to believe, want us Trinitarians to believe, is that Trinitarian theology was invented later on, as a Johnny come lately, and therefore Jesus was um, catalog cataloged and categorized as the third, second person of the Trinity later on, but all along God has also always been a, a monad, a, a, a unity, a, a monotheistic uh, singular God, singular being one person. But that's not really quite the, quite the case. The word mysteria in the Greek word mysterion in the Bible doesn't refer to something that um, that is that is unknown to anyone. You know, like a, a, a whodunit novel, a mystery novel. That's not what mystery means. It refers to a, a truth that is true and confirmed from God's perspective in the heavens, but man simply doesn't realize, realize it yet. It's the idea of progressive revelation. God reveals things as time moves forward, and that's why it's mysterious to us, but it's not mysterious to God. We appeal to mystery because the Bible uses that example in its discussion on God's identity. Um, is Yeshua God an appeal to history? We also looked at the church fathers in that section. Um, and then we also looked at Yeshua God in examination of passages about the Trinity. So if I jump into each one of those, um, which I've kind of already done the introduction, um, if you're if you can stomach all of the philosophical discussions on Trinity, then this is the place where I say that philosophy and theology actually make for good study buddies. And so we introduce some philosophical terminology. Um, we talk about the idea of um, uh, is is it possible to discuss God in terms of three and one when we talk about identity? Isn't that one too many persons, one too many gods? Uh, how do we rectify all of that? How how do we reconcile all of of the um, philosophical uh, discussions about God with uh, what the Bible talks about? When when at the end of the day, and I admit this, the Bible isn't a heavily philosophically driven piece of document. The ancient Hebrews weren't driven by philosophy the way the Greeks were. And so maybe in the later centuries following the first apostles and disciples, things got heavily philosophical in the second, third, and fourth centuries through all of the um, Christological debates and things like that, all of the councils, the Nicaea councils and things like that. But all of that was necessary because of the threat to Christianity that it was facing from the philosophical um, discussions on the outside. And so you kind of have to um, appreciate uh, some of the hard work that the church fathers did in order to establish and preserve the truths that Trinity all, was already um, um, revealing. 
It wasn't that Trinity was invented in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th, and 5th centuries of Christianity. Rather, the biblical writers of the New Testament were already experiential Trinitarians. They lived as Trinitarians, and therefore it wasn't necessary for them to always articulate Trinitarian theology in the writings. That's why Paul doesn't have a lot of heavy Trinitarian theology built into his books, into his letters, but we do have Trinitarian or triadic passages that are interlaced into the discussions as if they're just commonplace. Why? Because they were commonplace. Because the biblical writers of the New Testament were experiential Trinitarians. They experienced Trinity because the Trinity had begun, the mystery of Trinity had already been revealed to them in the uh, life of Yeshua. So that was that particular section. Uh, I also talked about the different um, competing versions of Trinity. We've got modalisms, we've got the tritheisms, Arianism, Docetism, Ebionism, uh, Ebionatism, uh, Macedonianism, Adoptionism. Adoptionism is also um, Dr. Tuggy's kind of flavor of, of biblical Unitarianism. Uh, Jesus was adopted as the son and that's why he can be worshiped as the son of god and as messiah he was adopted by the father god but he's not um eternally existent he's just divine in a special way there's partialism uh things like that and so um those are some of the different subjects that we looked at in that particular part of my commentary but as i keep scrolling in section two let's get a little bit technical that's where we talked about dale tuggy uh, head on we quoted his version of trinity we quoted a a um some um, uh, debate material from Dr. Uh, Michael Brown, who debated Tuggy head-to-head. You can look that up on YouTube if you'd like to. I recommend it. It's like a two-hour debate that they did with one another. Uh, and then it was as we keep going through uh, my commentary, you see I'm just scrolling down through it and moving kind of quickly through this. Seg- segment three of paper two is Yeshua, God, and Appeal to Mystery. Dr. James Anderson d- uh, introduces this idea of Macru, M-A-C-R-U-E, which is another one of my favorite representations to explain Trinity. It's the idea that there are no true contradictions in the Bible. There are simply the Macrus, which is a acronym which means merely an apparent contradiction resulting from unarticulated unres- un- equivocations. So when we talk about equivocation, we're talking about words and terms that are slightly amb- amb- ambiguous, that uh, are that need to be nuanced, like when we say Jesus is God. Um, the word God there, beca- because of our modern um, confusion between statements of identity and statements of predication, the word God there needs to be nuanced. It needs to be explained. It needs to be extrapolated. It needs to be disambiguated. It needs to be um, uh, drawn out. So we have to realize as biblical Orthodox uh, Trinitarians that non-Trinitarians, the, the, the flavor of oneness Pentecostals, also agree that Jesus is God. But in their is statement, the word God there is a statement of um predication in the sense that jesus is the father jesus and the father are the same being um they don't believe that jesus is a separate person from the father they don't believe in three persons is the point i'm trying to make they believe in numerical identity of one there's one god one person and his name is jesus but sometimes he represents the father sometimes the son sometimes the holy spirit it's a form of modalism um so it's um, modalistic monarchianism all over again. So two branches of monarchianism, modalistic monarchianism and dynamic monarchianism. Um, modalistic monarchianism, there's one God wearing three masks. Dynamic monarchianism, there's one God, but he doesn't wear three masks. 
when we talk about Jesus as God and this idea of contradiction and ambiguity, Dr. Uh, James Anderson believes, who himself is a Trinitarian, he believes that we simply have terms in the Bible that aren't fully articulated by God. They're not expounded, but not explained earlier on. So he's he's appealing to this whole idea of progressive revelation once again. Um, and mystery, that's why he's a Mysterian theologian. Uh, it doesn't. It's not a bad term, by the way. It's a good thing to be a Mysterian theologian. Most Christians fall into that same camp of Mysterian theology. They just don't know that. I'm just giving you a label for something you probably didn't know you already were. So Macru is merely an apparent contradiction. It's not a real contradiction, right? Jesus is God and the Father is God. That's not a contradiction, like many non-Trinitarians would argue. It's merely an apparent contradiction. Why? Because it's a result of unarticulated equivocation meaning there is a term that's not explained until a later part of the bible that's what i mean by unarticulated equivocation unarticulated terminology that god didn't explain so in the beginning when it says god created the heavens and the earth moses wrote that for genesis 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth but yet when paul read those words by his day he realized that the word god there what actually included the complex nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God was this complex being. It's one being, but three persons being represented by the one being. And thus, the word God there could be now unpacked because the mystery had been revealed to Paul and revealed to the other um, first century um, people who walked and talked with Jesus as Yeshua revealed who he truly was. And so that's why we mean by Makru, a very interesting uh, section in my commentary. I recommend you go back and read that again. Um, scrolling quickly past that, um, going down to Is Yeshua God an Appeal to History? Uh, we turn to Trinitarian Dr. Bo Branson, who is also an um, analytic theologian like Dr. Dale Tuggy. So he, they speak the same language, and yet Dr. Bo Branson is a Trinitarian, and Dr. Dale Tuggy is a non-Trinitarian, is a biblical Unitarian. But they both have highly analytic philosophical um, perspectives in trying to deal with this issue of Trinity. And Dr. Bo Branson simply takes Dr. Tuggy back to school and reminds him that history is on the side of Trinitarian theology and not on the side of Unitarian theology. The church history, the church fathers favored the Trinitarian perspective, which is why they championed it and enshrined their beliefs in the creeds that we now have memorized in today's Christian circles. So go back and read that if you'd like to get a look at the historical perspective. Uh, doc, in, the, in the words of uh, Dr. Bo Branson, history matters. All right, moving quickly past that, we finally got to um, segment five is Yeshua God and examination of passages about the Trinity, where we use this chart from Karm and looked at the idea that the way the Bible's supposed to be um, interacted with is that we read certain passages where we interact with terms and um, uh, nomenclature and uh, um, let me just kind of shrink that one a little bit and show you. Uh, give me a second. Oops, don't want to do that. Um, okay, you can see on my on my um, screen here. There's Father, Son, and otherwise I'm going to get cut off. All right, we got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this table, you can see that what Karma is trying to get us to understand is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all share some similar attributes, titles, 
and um, um, occurrences throughout salvation history and human history, giving us this look at how there's one being known as God, but yet three persons who are interacting with us, three separate persons, yet one being. And so that was how that particular um, uh, uh, part of my uh, table worked. Let's see. Let me blow that back up to the where I wanted it. Oops. There we go. All right. And so as we continued working our way, uh, finishing up with paper two, we turned to paper three. By the way, I'm going a little bit over in my study. So if you guys don't mind, just give me another, say, uh, five or ten minutes to do the overview of um, paper three. Exploring the Shema, paper three of three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? So it's a three-part paper on purpose. Uh, dealing with the tripart nature of our God. And in this particular um, uh, part of my commentary, we had more topics. Uh, number one topic, introduction, my bluff, my bottom line up front on who and what I believe the Holy Spirit is. Uh, number two, who or what is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God versus Spirit of Christ versus the Holy Spirit. Uh, section three, who what is the Holy Spirit, who or what Spirit is indwelling believers. Section number four, who, what is the Holy Spirit, the Filioque debate, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Latter-day Saints, and social Trinitarian thoughts. Remember, each one of these links in my commentary is hot-linked, so if you click on any link, if you're using the website or your mobile device, if you click on it, it'll jump right down into that particular topic. Uh, segment five, who, or what is the Holy Spirit, rabbinic Jewish thoughts from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Segment six, who or what is the Holy Spirit, Unitarian thoughts versus classical Trinitarian thoughts. Kind of a reminder on what we looked at in paper two about Unitarian versus Trinitarian. Segment, uh, or paper, or, uh, not paper, I'm sorry, paragraph seven, uh, or chapter, if this ends up being a book. Who or what is the Holy Spirit, revisiting the Holy Spirit passages from paper two, which is a repeat of the um, chart that we just saw a moment ago from Karm. Minus the Father and Son columns, just dealt with the Holy Spirit. And then last, we were ready to turn to this excursus, which we're going to do next week, which is entitled Ruach Within versus Ruach Upon. And so, again, let me give my overview. In the bluff, I just tell you right up front what I believe as a Unitarian, again, in my particular view of the Holy Spirit, which is helpful because when it comes to identifying the Holy Spirit, there's a little, there's far fewer verses that outline his role. Um, and, is, and and how he is to be identified as, as a separate person. It's almost by default that we give him the, the designation of third person of the Trinity. Um, but all throughout the Old Testament, it's very difficult to differentiate between God the Father, who is pure spirit, and the Holy Spirit himself as a third person of the Trinity. We just see this, just this basic broad overlap between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God, which is what leads many Unitarians to the conclusion that there is no third person of the Trinity who is separate. The Spirit is simply another way of, of um, talking about God. There, the, the is there is an, an is of identity. It's not an is of predication. Uh, the, um, God the Father is the Holy Spirit. That's what they're trying to say. Um, so we talked about that in my bottom line up front, what I believe uh, the Holy Spirit or who I believe he is. In um, paragraph two, who or what is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of Christ versus the Holy Spirit, I entertain this idea of, again, trying to disambiguate the language of the Bible when we're talking about spirit, right? Because there is purposeful overlap because the Spirit of God from an I, from a um, predicate perspective, the Spirit is very God, right? The Spirit is God. That's the statement of predication. His class of being, designation, um, is God. That's like a statement of his of his. Um, of, of character of his characteristics when we say a, uh, a statement of predication a statement of um of character traits and 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 things like that 
um, descriptions, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. That's a statement of identity. So we had to kind of di- kind of try to disambiguate that whole discussion of where we find verses that talk about the Spirit of God versus the Holy Spirit for, versus God the Spirit versus the Spirit without any other qualifying uh, nouns like God or or Jesus or something like that. So we, we looked at that. It's a very helpful um, um, sex- segment in my commentary. We continued moving on through that uh, uh, paragraph through who or what is the Holy Spirit. Who, what spirit is indwelling believers? This was a very again helpful segment to show us that all three persons dwell within us by the Spirit, because Jesus, as a human being, sits at the right hand of the Father, and He certainly can't simultaneously indwell each and every believer physically, right? That wouldn't work. But He can do it simultaneously by the Spirit, meaning in spirit form. It's the Spirit of Jesus who lives in us, and yet it's the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and yet it's God the Spirit who lives in us as well. That's what I mean by who or what spirit is indwelling believers, all three. And yet it's not three gods, not three beings, it's one God, three persons, right? Don't lose me. Moving right along, but uh, wrapping things up. Um, you can see this, there were a lot of verses here that we looked at, uh, which is where you always wanna, want to, at the end of the day, get all of your theology from and all of your final authority from, right? Sola Scriptura and Toto Scriptura. Uh, then we had chapter no, chapter number four, if it was a book, a chapter, uh, it's for now it's just paragraph. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? We had the filioque debate, which is the split between the Eastern Orthodoxy and the um, um, ro- the Roman Catholic Church over from whom does the Spirit proceed? Is it from the Father alone, or does he proceed from Father and Son? Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy took the view that uh, the Spirit proceeds from the Father alone as the, the, the archae, the source. Uh, Roman Catholicism took the view that um, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and Protestant uh, Evangelicalism or Protestant Reformation followed with the same theology that uh, the Catholic Church inherited from their um, mother church, uh, Catholicism. And so it's, it's normal for most Protestant Evangelicals to also agree with standard Catholic uh, theology that the Holy Spirit proceeds from Father and Son, I do as well. And thus we differ, we differ, uh, we differ from uh, Eastern Orthodoxy in that regard. But we talked about that in that particular segment. We talked about the Latter-day Saints' uh, perspective on the Holy Spirit, how they believe that He's an impersonal force of activity and, and uh, energy, like um, like the force in Star Wars or electricity in your wall. Social Trinitarian. We talked about those particular thoughts as well. Um, go back and read that particular segment. I won't I'll look at it now. Uh, but moving right along, this segment, this particular paper was a lot longer than the other two. Um, here we go. Number five, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Rabbinic Jewish thoughts from the encyclopedia. We already know that rabbinic Jews don't believe that Jesus is Christ, that he's not the Messiah. Therefore, they reject Trinity. They're strict monotheists. They are Unitarians in that regard, um, but they are not, they're not biblical Unitarians. They don't believe in Christianity. Biblical Unitarians are, in fact, Christians in that uh, conversational topic. But rabbinic Jews are not Christians, therefore they reject Trinity, and their view of the Holy Spirit is simply that the Holy Spirit is simply God. It's a statement of identity all over again. The Holy Spirit is another way of saying the Holy One of Israel, who is a spirit. So uh, it's the same way that uh, many popular biblical Unitarians describe God as well, not the way that Jehovah's Witnesses do. So that was what we looked at in that particular segment. It wasn't very long. Um, You can read about their views in the Encyclopedia Judaica or Jewish Encyclopedia. 
Segment number six, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Unitarian thoughts versus classical Trinitarian thoughts. Just kind of a, bringing a summary to those particular views once again in that segment. We looked at Dale Tuggy's uh, views on the Holy Spirit once again. Um, and then as we finally moved a little bit further down, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Segment number seven, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Revisiting the Holy Spirit passages from paper two. Uh, which is where we kind of dead ended last week and which we finished. And then as I jump back up to the final uh, top, so I can jump back down to the very bottom, we're now ready next week to turn to segment eight, which is excursus, ruach within versus ruach upon. What is an excursus? It's kind of a supplementary material. You don't have to read it, but I hope you stick around and, and follow along with me. I'm certainly not trying to discourage you from uh, reading along with me. Let me go through this segment. I think it'll be beneficial for us, but it's not um, heavily um, apologetic in this nature. It'll have some apologetic features to it. So we're going to talk about Trinitarian versus Unitarian or non-Trinitarian perspectives, but we're also going to talk about um, this idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon people versus the Holy Spirit indwelling people. And this dichotomy that's kind of set up in common Christian circles that the Holy Spirit was only on people in the Old Testament, but now he's in people in the New Testament, and I'm going to challenge that perspective. But that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy real quick. Uh, last week I read Genesis 1, 1 through 5 in the English, and then I followed it up with John 1, 1 through 5 in the Greek. Tonight I'm going to read the Hebrew, and only the Hebrew, from Genesis 1, 1, and then I'm also going to read the Greek from John 1, 1 through 5. And then as a bonus... Not this week, but next week, I'm going to swap those. So, right now, I'm reading Hebrew as it's connected to the Old Testament, and Greek as it's connected to the New Testament. But next week, I'm going to read um, Genesis 1-1 from the Greek, and um, John 1-1... in the Hebrew. I'll swap the languages around to see what we can do with that, okay? We'll have some fun with our liturgy. So let's just look at this, uh, starting over on the um, right side of the page right there. Genesis 1-1 says, Breshit bara Elohim et ha-shemayim et ha-aretz. Verse 2, Vaha-aretz haita tohu vavohu v'choshek al-pane tohom v'ruach Elohim malachefet al-pane ha-mayim. Verse 3, Verse 4, And verse 5, And that's Genesis 1, 1 through 5 in the Hebrew. Let's turn to the Greek. John 1, 1 through 5, starting right there over on the right side of the page. Verse 1 says, In arche ein halagas, kai halagas, ein pras tantheon kai theos ein halagas. Verse 2, hutas ein in arche pras tantheon. Verse 3, panta di autu. Agenato kai koros autu agenato ude hain ha gegonen verse four in auto zain I'm sorry zoain ain zoe ain kai hain he zoain 
ein anthropon, and then verse 5, kai ta fos ente scatia, scatia, fane kai e scatia auto u katalaben. And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video that we're going to watch tonight. I think it's about five minutes long. And after the video, uh, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tetsay Tor Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question Why did the sacrificial system require a blood sacrifice? FYI, the study of the sacrificial system of the days before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD can be quite a challenging topic to tackle from a 21st century Christian perspective. I recommend watching my other short primary yet complimentary sacrifices YouTube video for additional information. See the link and video preview in the next slide. And what you're looking at right now is uh, uh, there's a link to my other previous animal sacrifice in the Old Testament video in the upper right corner there from my YouTube channel. All right, the animal sacrifices conveyed both a temporal and an eternal message to the participants. The blood of bulls and goats is the shadow, Yeshua Jesus is the type. However, before we become so quick to look down on God's temporal shadows, let's look at what the sacrificial system of those days could accomplish. In Psalms chapters 32 and 51, we see the heart of a man who genuinely experienced the forgiveness of Hashem, that is, God. In Psalm 32, 1, he stated that the man whose sin is covered is blessed. And the Hebrew for covered here, by the way, is not kippur, it's actually kasa, it's poetic parallelism. In verse 5, he clearly states that its acknowledgement of his sin brought about his true forgiveness from Hashem. So it's that um, David knew that he had his uh, sins forgiven. It's because of unmerited favor that this man could rejoice in the mercies of Hashem. Go back and read verses 10 and 11 to catch the important uh, part of that. Psalm 51, if you, if you recall, was written after David had committed the gross sin with Bathsheba, Bathsheba, the mother of Melech Shlomo, which is King Solomon. And in this passage, we again see a man who, knowing the true goal of the Torah, the law, salvation of his eternal soul through the promised one to come, he sought the genuine forgiveness of his maker. He knew what the goal was because the Holy Spirit had revealed the goal to him. Verses 16 through 19 of the psalm explain to us readers that a heart given to genuine trusting faithfulness, which is the very same heart required of us today, is what rendered the sacrifices of the Tanakh effective. Understand that. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed to something greater. So simply performing the rituals perfunctorily did not please our Heavenly Abba, that is, minus faith. Verses 16 and 17 remind us of that. Rather, it was a heartbroken and genuine submission to the Spirit of God that moved Hashem to forgiveness. It's this same heart that gave the sacrifices validity. Did David as of yet know the name of his future descendant, Yeshua? Well, we don't have any evidence to support that he explicitly knew Jesus' name in his faith. What he did know is that through Moshe, Moses, the Torah promised that one day a prophet would arise and that the people were to obey him. Read Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Prophet K 
capital P. They were waiting for him because they knew that the Torah had um, anticipated him coming and it talked about him. What David also had was a glimpse of the intended function and nature of the Torah, that is the goal, and that these anti-types pointed towards that day when the corporate sins of all Israel would be forgiven, never again to be brought to Hashem's mind. Read Psalm 103, verse 12, 103, verse 12. So David had all of this available to him, even though it was in the time period of the Tanakh. This is the day where Israel's corporate sins are removed. This is the day spoken about in Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah 31, 34. For I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. Now we know that this is uh, future because all of Israel today doesn't know yet, doesn't yet know Messiah. And in case you've forgotten, this is actually a New Testament feature. Read Hebrews 8, 12, this whole idea of uh, forgiving one's sins. According to the book of Hebrews, the sacrifices of David's day could cleanse the flesh and restore ritual purity, but they couldn't cleanse the conscience. That is to say, I understand Hebrews to be teaching that only the eternal blood of a sinless sacrifice can regenerate the heart and mind of an individual. That's the goal of the sacrifices themselves. And the mortal blood of mortal animals, they couldn't bring us to that goal. By comparison, however, the blood of bulls and goats focused on the ritual, temporal, and eternal. So Jesus is the eternal and blood of bulls and goats is the mortal. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's of course Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 as rendered from the KJV. And we can see right away how these two systems work together. The earthly system with the blood of the animals and the heavenly system with the blood of Messiah himself. The two have to work in concert with one another, to work in tandem with one another. They don't cancel out one another. Uh, they complement one another. And that's really what the writer to the book of Hebrews is trying to explain. The Old Testament saints then were not saved, quote-unquote, by a different system than the one in which we rely on. If they were, then this would suggest that there were really two separate ways unto righteousness, which is a theory which we know cannot be true, right? We know that there were not two ways of salvation, yet sometimes we get confused about the animal sacrifices. Yeshua has now become the means by which all men must satisfy the righteous requirement, the righteous atoning requirement of the Holy One. It's in Yeshua, it's by Yeshua. This type of atonement is not the kind that's repeated year after year. Our sins are not meted out into animals only to be repeated the next year at Yom Kippur. No, this type of atonement is based on better promises with a better sacrifice, right? We know this is true. What does the Torah say? Quote, no longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother, no Adonai, for all will know me from the least of them to the greatest, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more, end quote. That's Jeremiah's passage again. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the short video. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. 
and thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit preserving the words for us so that we can grow, so that we can be challenged, so that we can be corrected, so that we can get our theology straight. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son into the world to die for our sins, to take the place that we couldn't take, to pay the price that we couldn't pay. Lord, we know that we owed a debt, and sin held us to that debt, and the payment was death. And we couldn't pay that debt because we were not sinless. But you sent your sent your sinless son, your spotless lamb, into the world to pay the price that we couldn't pay. And now we stand righteous before you, exonerated. We've been acquitted. We've been cleansed. We've been restored in our fellowship with you. And now we can walk by the power of the Holy Spirit in lives that are pleasing to you. So thank you for this opportunity, for this responsibility to walk in your ways and to demonstrate your name in the earth and to showcase what it means to be a follower of God. Thank you, Lord, for opportunities that we encounter to share our testimony with other people around us, continue to strengthen us and raise us up as witnesses in these very dark and evil days, confusing times that we live in. Bring us back together next week for another meaningful study, and we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.